Let me invite you to turn to the 43rd chapter of Genesis. We've been away from Joseph. We've been away from this classic story of family for a while, but we're getting back into it now. Getting back into it now. We come to read the 43rd chapter of Genesis. It's a little bit of a lengthy reading, but not so long as uh, others in this saga. You maybe don't recall where we've been, so let me remind us. There's been a famine. Joseph, the young brother, the favorite child of Jacob, was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was uh, sent down to Egypt land. He was up. He was down in the pit, marked for death. He was raised up to Pharaoh, and now he's been exalted. He is prime minister, second in command of Egypt. He's high. He's mighty. And he just met his brothers last time. He just met his brothers. They didn't know who he was. They still don't know who he is. And he gave them a request. I'll give you food, but go back home and bring back your brother, Benjamin, your younger, youngest brother. So they have food. But now we come to chapter 43. Let's hear God's word. Let's receive it as the authoritative word that you need and that we need. Let's hear from Moses in our Lord's hands. We're told that now the famine was severe in the land. And when the brothers of Joseph had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little bit of food. But Judah said to Jacob, the man warned us solemnly saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother's with you. If you'll send our brother with us, we'll go down and buy you food. But if you'll not send him, we won't go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother's with you. Israel said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to those questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we'd not delayed, we would now return twice. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I'm bereaved. So the men took this present and they took double the money with them. And Benjamin, they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it's because of the money, which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we're brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us slaves and seize our donkeys. 
So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we brought it again with us. We brought other money down with us to buy food. We don't know who put money in our sacks. The steward replied, peace, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. When the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and they washed their feet. And when he had given their donkey's fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. But when Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. He inquired about their welfare and said, is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrate themselves. And Joseph lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother? of whom you spoke to me, God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself, and them by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that's an abomination to the Egyptians. And they set before him the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God does neither. It endures forever. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the preaching and the hearing of his word. Lord, press us into your mold. Make us by your spirit and your word, your people. Show us your love, no matter our lives. And give us Christ, we pray. In his name, amen. When I was a young tyke, a young kiddo, I went to my grandparents' house. This is what children do. My grandparents watched one of two things, a very good thing and a very boring thing, in my opinion, at the time. The Braves, that was a very good thing. The Weather Channel. The Weather Channel, it was always on. I mean, if the Braves game was not on, it was the Weather Channel. Now, I was really confused by this because I, I didn't like the Weather Channel. <laughs> I really didn't like the Weather Channel. I didn't know why you would have it on all day long. Or baseball. But now I'm old, er. And for some reason, I, I begin to understand why you have the weather channel on. I don't have the, the, the TV on, but I, I check it on my phone. I, I, I want to know the, the, the weather for the day. And because we're in Georgia, I want to know the weather for the day like three or four times a day. Because it'll change. But the fun thing about the weather channel is I vividly recall that they had a lot of H's and a lot of L's on the screen. You see this when you watch that. If you're an expert weather channel watcher like I am, uh, you'll notice that from time to time they'll show H's and L's. I didn't know what those meant as a, as a young young kiddo. I didn't actually know what they meant until uh, 
this week when I was preparing for the sermon. <coughs> but they, re- they represent high and low pressure uh, centers, systems. High and low pressure systems. What does that mean? I'm not a scientist. I'm not getting the, the science. You can look it up. You can talk to meteorologists. But very basic idiot level understanding of it. <clears throat> when there's a low pressure system, that means there's more storms coming. When there's a high pressure system, blue skies, clear sailing, beautiful, low pressure. It's opposite what you might think. We usually talk about pressure in our lives. I'm under a lot of pressure. Bad. But with weather, it's different. And that may be a little bit of a silly opening here, but um, it's really this chapter. This chapter is a weather system. This chapter is a, uh, that's the name, a pressure vortex. It's a vortex of pressure. It's a weather system in which God deploys high pressure and low pressure. God deploys a low pressure system that really threatens the lives of one family in Bible times. And he deploys a high pressure system of his love. And he does so. He deploys these two systems for a certain purpose. We've seen it, haven't we? We've seen it with his family already. We've seen with his family of Jacob and Joseph and their brothers what it means to be confused. What it means to be needy. We've seen what it means to be in the church and to be a needy, confused sinner. We've seen it as the famine has appeared. It's a time of hardship, a time of famine. And in the air, there's a feeling of disaster. We've seen God raise up this one man, Joseph, to bring bread to the whole world, to bring life to the whole world. He's passed through his own suffering. He's passed through his own fires. But God has exalted him. And yet, Joseph's in this amazing place. His family ain't. His brothers who betrayed him, his brothers who sold him into slavery, they are separated from him by their sin. They're separated from him by their past, their baggage they have. And... This chapter is stage two in the great way, the great story of how God brings the brothers back. We're watching, as it were, the movie of Joseph, not the Prince of Egypt, but this this Bible version of it, which is actually the real deal. And we see God bringing Joseph back to his brothers, his brothers back to him. We've seen, we saw it uh, almost a month ago, I suppose, and the last time we were here, how their consciences were so stricken that they were, they were guilty, that, that they, they remembered their past sin. And Joseph remembered it, of course, because it happened to him. But this chapter is the way that they're going to be brought back. God will begin to bring back his brothers. And it's also the way that God brings you back. The way that God brings you back. He does it in two ways, with them and two ways with us. He does it with a low-pressure system and a high-pressure system. Let's look at the low-pressure system first. The low-pressure system simply of life. This is the first 14 verses. This is the pressure just of having a needy life. Because one of the great problems that you have, one of the great problems that every person on earth has, is the desire to control. One of the great issues we have in our lives that affects us is this need to feel in control, in charge of our lives. Thinking that I can manage my own self just fine. I can make my own choices just well enough. And who is this God? I don't know. I don't care. Out of my equation, out of my life. Oh, yes, I may be a Christian. I may go to church. But functionally speaking, God's not there. And yet God has a thousand ways of showing you 
and showing us that he's in charge. A thousand ways of showing you that you're a creature and he's the creator. That he rules the world down to the death of every single sparrow. He rules the world down to the fall of every single piece of hair. We are in his arena, his world, not our own. We've already seen it with these ten brothers. They've been shaken by their first trip down to Egypt. They had faced some serious issues. They had had reminders of what happened 20 years ago when they sold their brother into slavery, when they said he was dead to their father. But hey, they made it back home. They're back home in their homeland. They're back snug in their beds. They have food. They're not in Egypt. They're not in prison except for Simeon, one of them. But hey, who cares? He's Simeon. He's out. We're back to normal at least. Ten of us are okay. Maybe the famine will end, and maybe I can get back to ruling my own life. Maybe I can push my sin, my past, out of my mind, out of sight, out of mind. But God will not let them stay there. And he uses three ways, three uh, pressures of life that he really pushes down on these guys to make them look to him. First pressure is simply the fallen world. The first of the low pressure systems of life that he uses here is the reality of a fallen world. Look at verse one. Starts off. Now the famine was severe in the land. Now what's funny about it, if you've been reading, of course, is that uh, you look back at chapter 41 at the very end, verse 57, the famine was severe over all the earth. The famine was severe. Just repeating what it says. What's the point here? They had got the food from Egypt, but it ran out. They had gotten the grain from Joseph, but it didn't work. The famine was still there. They eat and they eat and they eat. There's none left. There's no more food. There was famine. It was still there. It was still a problem. And I know for most of us, we don't have any idea what a famine's like. You know, your tummy rumbles. What do you do? You, you know, you go to the store, you go to McDonald's, you go to whatever you want to and you get food. But you should know, maybe some of y'all do, that in a 10-mile radius from this spot, there are famines that occur. That's what the scholars call, the people call, food deserts. You may have heard this term. There's food available for the kids in the trailer parks. There's food available for the kids who, whose parents are strung out. There's food available. But what kind of food? Gas station food convenience store food. Can you live on going to Exxon? Can you live even on going to the Walmart gas station? I don't think so. Not not well, certainly. That's why the children <clears throat> within a 10 mile radius and in, in, in the city as well. All you have to eat is terrible food. And if you eat it, you will be extremely unwell. You see, so famine actually is a threat for us. You may not see it, but it is. It was for them as well. And what could they do? All they could do was the thing they didn't want to do, which is go back to Joseph. They didn't want to go see him. They, they didn't like this guy. They were worried about it. He, he, he reminded them of their past. They didn't like that. All they could do was go back to Egypt. The reality of the pressure of a fallen world made them need to return to Joseph, to their sin, to God's remedy. And that's true for you. You live in a world, we live in a world that's cursed by the fall. We live in a world that's not rosy and happy and nice. We live in a world where there are evil things. And the worst thing about it is there's evil in us. 
I mean, you think about the strong nations on earth, you think about this nation in which we live, the strongest nation on earth today. What has God been showing us over the years? He's in control. You're not in control. Just think about the storms from last week. I had to get up in the middle of the night and make sure there wasn't any water coming in to the house. Think about disease, think about death, all these things, wars. No matter how mighty you are, no matter how mighty the place you live in is, you are not in control. That's the first pressure that God uses. Just the world, just reality of the world. Second thing he uses, other people. Look at verse 3. Judah says to Jacob, the man warned us. He said, you will not see me unless your brother's with you. Judah says, look, we need to take Benjamin. We need to take the brother you love. We need to take the, the brother that, who's your new favorite, Benjamin, the young one. We need to take him, otherwise we can't get food. It was an unwelcome necessity. It was an unwelcome requirement, not because the world's fallen, but because Joseph said so. They couldn't control Joseph. They couldn't control what he thought. They couldn't control what he said. This is what you, you like to think you can do. This is what we love to think we can do. We love to think, I can change that person. I can change them. Maybe you find as you grow older that you really can't do that in your own strength. Only God in his grace, only God by his spirit can do that. I mean, if, if you marry somebody and you say, I marry them because I'm going to make them better. No. The husband wants to change his wife, the wife wants to change her husband. The boss who wants to change his employer. The employee who wants to change her boss. People who cause you grief and heartache, you cannot change. Your, your, your life is shaped by the reality of other people in your business that you can't control. And it presses you down. But third simply is the basic need of circumstances. The third thing, right? Not just the fallen world, not just other people, but the thirdly, God uses simply the situation that these people are in. I mean, listen to Jacob. Verse 2. Go buy us a little food. Give us a little bit of food. Listen to him in verse 6. Why'd you bring up the young brother? Why'd you bring up Benjamin? What possessed you? You can almost imagine him saying, kids, guys, what are you doing? And so what's Jacob feeling like here? He's a, he's a grumpy, complaining, bitter old man. And his sons are just saying, well, he, he asked us. I, we, we had no idea what he was going to do. Jacob hates the situation he's in. He fights against it. He complains about it. He's frustrated by it, but he cannot change it. He cannot move the mountain. He cannot move heaven and earth to change his reality. This is his life. And so it is for you. I mean, often in your lives, you encounter situations that are far from ideal. You wish they were different. You complain. You get depressed. You struggle. But in the end, it's God's providence. You have to accept it. He deals with these guys with these three ways. And, and the fascinating thing to notice is that this is the thumb coming down. This is the hard providence. This is the low pressure that creates the storms. These are the storms of life. But the beautiful thing is how God is actually changing these guys for the better. They're actually improving. Exhibit A, Judah. Exhibit A, look at Judah. He's coming to the forefront He's coming to the forefront as the head of the family. The, the, the oldest, Reuben, 
is an unstable man. Remember Reuben from last time? Well, it's been a few weeks. Let me remind you. He had made an extravagant, silly, irrational promise to his father. He said in the last chapter, Dad, if I don't come back with Simeon, who's down there in Egypt in prison, you can kill my two sons. How's that going to help matters? What is that, Reuben? Unstable. But Judah, Judah's different. The last time we saw Judah, what is he doing? The last time we saw Judah, he was doing awful things. The last time we saw Judah, he was an awful father-in-law. He was a hypocrite. He was cruel. He was ignoring God. The last time we saw Judah, he was a man who preferred anything but the company of Christians. But now, look at Judah. Verse 8. Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me. We will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety from my hand. You shall require him. If I don't bring him back, let me bear the blame. Reuben said, hey, take my kids. I don't want to be Reuben's kids. Judah says, take me, take me. I'm the pledge myself. And he says, I want to survive for the grandkids. He cares about God's covenant blessing to the families. He's being changed. Now he is the man of wisdom. And Jacob himself actually is being changed in this very chapter. He's being changed from the irritable old man, the complaining, almost senile guy. You can see him, imagine him talking in verse 2. Hey, boys, just get us a little food. That's no big deal. It's like you're going down to the corner store. He's not seeing the reality of life. It's three weeks to Egypt. Three weeks to Egypt. Jacob plays a self-pitying blame game. But eventually, Jacob is compelled to come back to himself. Starting in verse 11, all the way through verse 14. He says, all right, if it has to be the case, if you have to take Benjamin down, bring gifts, bring money, bring food. And he says in verse 14, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. He's come to grips with it. And the way we know he's come to grips with it is the name that is called in this whole chapter, the name is called. Did you notice he's not called Jacob? He's called Israel. It's the way the author does to kind of show you he's, he's becoming a changed man. He's becoming a changed man. He's not Jacob simply. He's not Jacob anymore. He, he's returned the strength of God. He says decisively, let's take a gift this man. He says, take your brother also. He says to his sons, take your brother. This is the same guy who last chapter almost disowned them, who wouldn't even call these kids his sons. Now he calls them his sons and his brothers. Most of all, most of all, he says in verse 14, may God Almighty, may El Shaddai grant you mercy before the man. He has returned to faith. He has returned to God. He lays his hand on the great name of God, the Almighty One, the one that Abraham had looked to back in chapter 17. He trusts this same God and he submits to the will of this Lord. If I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. So what's for us? What's for us? The road for us is clear. When you're in the low pressure storms, don't fight against your God-ordained needs. Don't, don't fight against the pressures, the circumstances of this life. You'll break yourself. You'll break yourself. And you'll break other people. Calvin puts it this way. Let's learn patient endurance. 
Should the Lord compel us to do many things contrary to the inclination of our own mind? You know what that means? God makes you do things you don't want to do. You don't think are right. Situations you prefer not to be in, God puts you in. Jobs that you'd prefer to kind of take or leave it, he gives to you. People you wish were different, learn patient endurance. Learn to seek Christ's help in whatever situation you find yourself. Believe in God's mercy that you'll be made a better woman, a better man, a better boy, a better girl. That as you work through these pressures, these low pressure systems, these storms, you will be made stronger. And yet the beautiful thing about this chapter is that it's not just a low pressure system. It's not just the the L on the weather channel. God brings in an H. God brings in the blue skies. He gives the high pressure love. He gives the high pressure system that comes in the second part of the chapter, the visit to Joseph. They head down to Egypt. You see, God has not just squeezed Jacob. Isn't that your view of God sometimes? Kind of this guy just squeezes you. They're just to make you squirm. Likes to watch you as you get in trouble and says, ha, get out of this one, human. No, it's not the God we have here. The God who provides pressure and storms is the same God who demonstrates his love. He pulls Jacob back to him. He pulls these brothers back to him, not simply through pressing them with reality, but bringing them back to him with the cords of love. Let's look at it. Look first here. But the way these guys are scared, they have doubts about God's love. They have doubts that God loves them, just like you do. Imagine that. They have doubts about God's love. These are guilty men. These are men who've committed evil crimes 20 years ago. They're nervous men. They're fearful men. They expect the worst. So look at verse 18. What happens? Well, they're brought to the steward of Joseph's house, the maitre d', the foreman, and they're scared. So they say this, we're brought here because of the money, because the money that we paid was back in our sacks. And we're brought here so that he can take us and make us his slaves and seize our donkeys. They thought Joseph was bringing them to his house just to take them as slaves. They're even so silly as to think that the Vice President, the Prime Minister of Egypt, with all of his cash and all of his limos, would want their donkeys. Would want their little donkeys. This is like if you had a BMW and you wanted a beat-up clunker. You don't want a donkey. What would you have want with their donkeys? You don't need donkeys. He has all the, all the luxurious animals, all the Mercedes camels that he needs. But these guys are scared. They're inventing reasons why they might be here. They're, they're worried. They're guilty. Their consciences are stricken. And then they over-apologize. They apologize over and over again. The steward, oh, we came down the first time. Uh, we didn't know how the money got back in our sacks. We brought it again. Here, here's more money. You can just see them. They're, they're, they're scared out of their minds. Why do they do that? These are guys who have been cruel men. These are guys who have been selfish men. These are guys who have been callous men. And men like that often fail to understand true kindness. People like that cannot believe true kindness. Folks like that are suspicious of true kindness. They're always asking, what's the catch? What's the catch? What's the fine print? What gives? Where's the trap in this? 
And this is how Satan leads you to doubt God, isn't it? This is what the serpent said in the Garden of Eden. He comes to Eve and he says, hey, hey, Eve, see that fruit right there? You know, God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. He doesn't want that for you. He's not really that kind. He's not really loving enough to give you all the other fruit. He's not really that loving. You see, Satan wants you like these men to doubt the goodness of God, to doubt the generosity of God. And Joseph here, as a little picture of God, is showing such generosity. These guys are scared by it. These guys are scared. Do you know that when Christians show generosity to people like this, extravagant kindness, it scares people. People don't know what to do with it. I think this is what Paul means when he talks in Romans 12 about overcoming evil with good. For in so doing, you'll keep burning coals on their heads. This is why the extravagance of generosity can often be a very scary thing. But second, God in Joseph does not just come to doubting people, but he continually demonstrates love. He reassures them of his love. He gives them more and more signs of love. Look at verse 23. What does the steward say? They've over-apologized. They're really, really sorry and really, really scared. And the steward of Joseph says, first word, peace. Don't worry. Peace. Peace. I'm not here to get you. Peace. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given treasure to you. Then he brings Simeon out. He brings the guy in the chains. And, and Simeon's not, you know, bruised. He's not skin and bones. There's no marks of interrogation. They haven't been waterboarding Simeon in the Egyptian prison. He's safe and sound. And then in verse 24, there's these, this whole series of kindnesses. They're brought in the house. They're given water. Their feet are washed. He, he gives their donkeys food. He treats them with hospitality. And then Joseph finally shows up and he gives them kind words. He doesn't say, what are you doing here? His first question is, are you well? Is your father well? Verse 27. Is he still alive? Is this your brother? He serves them food. They have a huge party. They have a great meal. They eat and they drink very freely. In fact, in verse 34, the word there for drink is not just a little bit, but a lot. They were very merry. And you see here is a picture of God's kindness. Joseph is showing this kindness because he knows a God who is extravagantly kind, even with wayward brothers. But there's one big difference between these guys and us. There's one huge difference between these brothers and us today. At this point, they are in the dark. They don't know who this governor is. They don't know who this vice president is. To them, he is a 38-year-old, clean-shaven, Egyptian-speaking politician. You'll notice that, that we're told he eats by himself. He doesn't want to eat with them, but he also doesn't want to eat with the Egyptians. He's kind of playing an ambiguous game. Is he Egyptian? Is he Hebrew? We don't know. It's a fun way of showing that. But the 17-year-old brother they once had, the 17-year-old boy, is invisible. And what does Joseph do? He sees, brother, he, sees, he sees his brother Benjamin. He sees his full brother, his mother's son, and he's overcome with emotion. He 
He's weeping. He has to go out of the room. He has to find a bathroom. He has to weep and weep and weep. He's overcome with emotion. He has to wash his face. He has to come back. He has to control himself. Why does he have to do all that? Is it because he's angry? No. It's because he's filled with love. Some of y'all may weep more even than others. So let me encourage the weepers in the room. Matthew Henry says this. Tears of affection and tenderness are no disparagement to anyone at all, even to great and wise men. Different cultures, different generations. Weep more, weep less. But tears of affection, tears of tenderness are no problem at all. Joseph weeps. Christ weeps, of course, you know. But there's one little detail here that's particularly striking. Verse 33, we read that they sat before him. They were seated before him. And they were seated in order. They were seated in order, oldest to youngest. We're told they were astonished. They were freaked out. They were seated in the right order. The mathematicians tell me that there are no less than 39,917,000 ways to order 11 individuals. Joseph puts them in the one right order. I mean, you gotta, you got to wonder, what was, were these guys thinking? They were like, wow, that's impressive. What, what's, what's going on here? It makes them wonder, how could this happen? And then, of course, this last little detail, verse 34, Benjamin gets five servings of soup. He gets five steaks, whatever the Egyptians had. He gets five meal, five uh, salads. Maybe you don't want the salad. He gets five uh, helpings of dessert. He gets five times as much. And what's funny is the reaction of the brothers. They're merry. They're happy. What happened the last time one of the brothers got more than the rest? What happened the last time one of the brothers, Joseph, was singled out as preeminent? Honor. They hated him. They envied him. But now these guys are being changed. They are happy. They are willing to let Benjamin get the honor. But still they have no idea. It's Joseph. They have no idea. He's filled with love towards them. They, they, they see, they feel the love, but they don't know who it is. Do you realize what you have as a Christian? You have the love of God and you should know who it is who's loving you. In a million different ways, you have no excuse. In a billion different ways, far more than 39 million. God has demonstrated his own love for you in this, and that while you were still away from God, while you still hated God, while you still were enemies with him, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. In a billion different ways, God says to you in Jesus, I spread a table for you. I love you. What more can I do? And if you're far from Christ, if you think this is all nonsense and silly talk, just look at your life. Look at your, just take this week, take a few months a week, look at your life and realize how many things you don't control. Realize the pressures of this life and realize all the ways in which you are being loved by God. The ways in which he is showing, he is pouring out his generosity over and over and over again. John Stott, the, uh, the great Anglican pastor, did a survey once of his congregation. He asked them one question. What brought you to Jesus? 
For many of them, it was not the terrors of the law, it was not the fear of hell, but it was the love of Christ that constrained them and compelled them. Why are we scared to believe in the love of God? You know, when folks talk about God as love, they don't mean this kind of love. When people talk about the, the, the love of God, they don't mean this kind of love. They mean a kind of, you know, insipid, weak, pathetic, mealy-mouthed love. This is intense love. This is radical love. This is overflowing love. This is love that does not stop. Do you know that for those with a bad record or what they think is a good record or no record at all, this chapter demonstrates that the love of Christ is real, that God can and does seek to deliver you. Why are you scared to believe that? And for the Christian, in all things that happen to you, high-pressure systems of joy, low-pressure systems of storm and stress, his love is towards you and for you. And if that's the case, then what else matters, really, in the end? What else matters? Let's pray. El Shaddai, God Almighty, we come, as Jacob did, as Joseph did, to you. We come hearing your word, seeing our lives, realizing your love. Help us this week to see it more clearly, more deeply, to know you and long for you, to want you, to be wooed by you, even as we're being pressed by you and stressed by you. We pray that the circumstances, the people in our lives, the reality of our own sin would not stop us, would not make us doubt your love in your ways. I pray you would show us this in Christ most supremely. Praying this in his name. Amen.